We live in a society that really values efficiency. It doesn't matter if it's fuel efficiency, energy efficiency, farm efficiency, or time efficiency. If you put efficiency at the end of something that you're trying to describe, you'll get people's attention. They'll know you mean business. Now try putting effectiveness at the end of the same some things you're trying to describe and notice how it just takes things to a whole new level. I'm Derek Leahy, and in this episode of Rural Routes to Climate Solutions, we're going to look at the difference between farming efficiently and farming effectively. I got the idea for this episode around this time last year. Around this time last year, we held our Farm Energy Efficiency Workshop in Farintosh, Alberta, at the Cohen Farm. Now, trying to find a farm that was a really good example of energy efficiency for a field day is kind of tricky. At least for us. If you've been on some of our field days or participated in our workshops, you'll notice we don't really work with a lot of producers that operate barns, uh, which is really the ideal fit for an energy efficiency field day. Our connections in the Alberta agricultural community are mainly with cattle and vegetable producers. It's something we do need to work on as an organization because there are climate solutions out there that apply to dairy, swine, eggs, and poultry producers climate solutions those producers can benefit from. I was racking my brain on where we could do this farm energy efficiency field day and someone on the Rural Roots Advisory Committee, and I can't really remember who it was, recommended doing a field day at the Cohen Farm in Farintosh with Dakota Cohen, a young producer, a farm consultant, and a permaculture educator. Cohen's don't run a hog or a chicken barn, far from it actually. But I had heard they'd done a lot of design work to crank up the efficiencies in their management system. Or at least that's what I thought. I may have actually used the wrong E-word. Right off the bat, I thought Dakota was going to kill the field day. Right in his introduction, he says, you know, I, I think we need to point out the difference between efficiency and effectiveness. Now, you can imagine what's going through my mind at that point as the organizer, the guy who busted his ass for six weeks to make this field day happen. I really thought he was going to start trashing the concept of efficiency right then and there. My stomach started to nod up. He didn't actually wind up bashing efficiency in the end. It turned out to be a pretty darn good field day too. And it also left me with a question that's been warming away in my mind ever since. What is farming effectively? Now, the example Dakota put out there during the field day, and I hope I'm remembering this correctly, it could be said that using chemical sprays to deal with pests may be an efficient way to deal with pests in your crops. You can get the job done quickly. But is it an effective use of the soils, of the ecosystem's own natural abilities to handle pests, such as doing things like attracting beneficial predators that will go eat those pests? Well, not really. The example helped me understanding farming effectively a bit, but I didn't really get my head around the whole thing till I picked up the phone and had a chat with Dakota and recorded this episode. So I'm hoping it's going to give you guys a better idea too of what farming effectively could look like. A couple things about Dakota before we get started. Some of you probably know him or maybe recognize the name. He's a pretty remarkable individual. He sounds like an old university professor sometimes too, especially when he says stuff like this. There's a, a Greek 
legend of the king of, of uh, his name is Sisyphus. And this king had offended one of the gods. And the gods, punished by punishment, they made him roll a rock up a mountain for eternity. See what I mean? But he's only like 27 years old. I was definitely not that intelligent and thoughtful at that age. The Western producer was already quoting this guy back in 2014. And by the way, that whole Greek tale he's telling there, that actually leads into his explanation as to why we procrastinate, which is a really interesting one. For a young guy like Dakota to be such a voice in the agricultural community, to be such a great teacher already, could only lead me... To another conclusion, I had to ask him, had he been put together in a lab out of pieces of Alan Savory, Wendell Berry, Sally Fallon, and Vedana Shiva? Here's what he had to say about that. That's right. Yeah, I was I was sent from the future to uh, uh, try to stop the advancement of industrial agriculture. <laughs> now about Dakota being the terminator of industrial agriculture. When you listen to the interview, it may sound like Dakota is being a little too harsh on conventional agriculture. He is quite critical of the current mainstream agricultural system, but he does that. But that doesn't mean he doesn't understand why conventional producers farm the way they farm. And if you don't believe me, just listen to this part right here. And the selling of a, of a thing that they feel is sacred. And I hope I haven't ragged on industrial farmers too much because I, I really do have a lot of compassion and understanding for for how they got into the situation that they're in right now. And, and all of the, the, they're backed up against the corner by the, the banks, the governments, and the, um, uh, and the insurance companies in that if you take it a loan, um, that loan has to be insured. In order to be insured, you have to farm a certain way. And, and in order to farm a certain way, you have to basically, you know, follow the industrial agricultural par- paradigm. And so it's like, it's not, it's not just the farmer's faults. We're all capable uh, uh, accomplices in this situation that we're in right now, my, myself included. And and it all stems from this idea of like we want to have cheap food so we can spend more money on the you know the luxuries of life. So that's Dakota. Those parents who are also a really important part of the story actually made the transition to organic agriculture before he was born. The story goes that his dad was out spraying in a field one day, and his mom came out to bring him his lunch. She walks to the field, gives him his lunch, walks back to the truck, and by the time she got to the road, she nearly passed out. Dakota said that his mom's quite sensitive to environmental stress. At that point, they decided, okay, we're done. They quit cold turkey with using any herbicides and fertilizers. That's around 1988, which is quite progressive, you could argue, quite uh, early adopter-ish at that time. Now, because they do direct marketing now, they haven't really kept up with the organic certification. Dakota said there was no real marketing advantage to doing it. Now, like a lot of kids who grew up on farms in Alberta, Dakota got off the farm as fast as he possibly could. He did carpentry for a while there, working long hours, you know, 16-hour days, and he came back to the farm because he had what he described as a early life crisis. I guess it happened when he was like 21 or something like that. He started watching documentaries around this time, like The World According to Monsanto, Forks Over Knives, Earthlings, and he's reading books by those major food system thinkers like Vedana Shiva and Wendell Berry. 
And uh, I also had some bad allergies when I was younger, like hay fever and stuff. So it just it was never really in the cards for me to to be a farmer, and, and I never really thought about it. But when I when I started educating myself and and looking at these problems in the world, it, the uh, the epiphany just hit me. It was just like holy crap! Like the 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 way that the rest of the world is feeding itself is is completely unsustainable, and. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, you know, the way that we did stuff on our farm wasn't perfect either, but it was, it was a f- like night and day between what I was learning about in these, in these books. And, and, and it's always like hindsight's 2020 when you look back at, at all the stuff you saw as a kid that you didn't really know why it was happening, but it all started to kind of make sense. And I just realized that there's all these problems in the world. Um, there's, you know, economic problems, social problems, suicide rates are, are off the charts, um, you know, the, our biodiversity is, is we're in the sixth mass extinction event on the planet. And, uh, and like, you know, there's the, our, our rural communities are dying. Like basically every, every problem that I, that I saw articulated in the news or in these books that I was reading, the, when I really thought about how, how would you go about fixing this? The only possible way that kept coming up was like, we have to start kind of back at the roots, which is agriculture. Right. And uh, I think it was in I I came back to the farm full time in 2012, uh, but uh, I I never really left the farm even while I was doing construction. I still lived on the farm um, in a uh, renting for my parents because I, I worked basically 17 hours a day, six days a week. So I was never on the farm really much, anyways. But in my spare time, I was still helping out. But I, I quit full time 2012 and came back and, and started uh, direct marketing all of the, the products that our farm was selling. <clears throat> so our, our entire mission on the farm is to regenerate the planet's ecosystem, uh, as well as the including kind of the human component of that ecosystem. Um, and we're doing that through producing the most nutrient dense food possible. And in order to produce the most nutrient dense possible, we have to basically have the most biodiverse ecosystem possible uh, because nutri- like basically the health of the planet and our health are inter- uh, intimately connected. So biodiversity and nutrient density are essentially the same thing in my, <clears throat> in my opinion. That's our kind of mission. The cones do grass-fed beef, Berkshire pork, free-range eggs, a variety of herbal teas from perennial shrubs like sea buckthorn and buffalo berry, They have perennial nut trees, they have had honeybees, and they grow all their own grain for their chickens and pigs. What the cones have on their farm, it is important to pursuing their objective of producing the most nutrient-dense food possible, but it's how they manage and work with what's on their land that really brings them closer to that goal. If you listen to our very first podcast episode, So Cows and Climate Change, with Nicolette Han Neiman, Nicolette said something quite powerful in that. It's not the cow, it's the how. It's how agricultural producers manage their farms and ranches that can lead to something like an effective use of the land. What you're growing can't achieve it on its own. It's really all in the management practices, which is a perfect segue into the management practices the cones are using they're innovative they're exciting but let's just listen to what dakota has to say first is the difference between farm efficiency and farming effectively 
the, the definition of efficiency is is to use the least amount of resources as possible. Okay. And but the definition of, of effectiveness is that uh, as you're using resources, you are uh, achieving your goal. So the the simplistic way of looking at it is is um, effectiveness is is doing the right thing. And efficiency is doing things right. Take, for example, uh, a wood stove, like a a standard um, airtight, you know, black box steel stove. And on the back of that stove, there will be an efficiency rating. And typically that that efficiency rating will, like for most stoves that you're buying today, it'll be in the the mid to high 80s. So basically, the the amount of resources you put into the front of that... um, uh, 80% of that is going to be, you know, combusted and, uh, or whatever the rating is. And, and, um, <clears throat> uh, and the remaining stuff goes up the, the chimney as, as smoke. So that, that's, that's, a, uh, the efficiency. It's, um, you, you could also measure, you know, the efficiency of, of, you know, engines or, or anything else. <clears throat> but, uh, ironically, if, if we were to measure how much of the heat that that wood stove produces goes into the building versus out the building up the chimney, it would probably be less than fifty percent. Okay. And so the like if effectiveness is tied to goals, and uh-huh. and efficiency is just how well you're you're um, you're using resources. Um, okay. So we have a, a wood stove on our on our uh, in my parents' place that's a masonry heater, and it's rated at. Uh, I believe 86% combustion efficiency, but it's also probably rated at like a 90% um, uh, combustion effectiveness or heating effectiveness in that because it weighs, you know, four and a half thousand pounds and it has a a serpentine flue that moves through huge amounts of thermal mass. By the time the flue gas, the the combustion gases, which are, uh, you know, like 1500 degrees Fahrenheit, by the time they go through... Uh, you know, tens of feet of of the this chamber inside this this giant rock, basically. And by the time they get to the flue, they they would be cool enough that you could put your hand on the on the the flue gases. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and so all the heat gets extracted through through design, and uh, and so it's it's very efficient. It, it doesn't use a lot of resources, but it's also very effective in that it 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 does a really good job of achieving the goal, which is to provide space heating. And huh. so uh, now I'm going to bring this back to agriculture. Hey, just before we go into that, I want to go over that stove analogy one more time. I know I needed to listen to the audio a couple of times before I got what Dakota was trying to say. So take a wood stove. A wood stove that is efficient either needs to burn less firewood than you were burning before to produce the same amount of heat or wastes less firewood. So loses less of that heat or smoke, I guess, through the uh, flue. Why is this efficient? Because the definition of being efficient is achieving the maximum productivity with minimum wasted effort or expense. Waste is the important part right here. With efficiency, you need to think we're trying to not waste something here. That's something we're trying not to waste. It could be time. It could be money. It could be effort. It could be natural resources. And or we're trying to use the bare minimum amount to achieve that maximum productivity. How is this 
any different from being effective. Back to that stove again. Dakota said effectiveness is tied to goals. In this case, our goal is to heat the house. Because of the design of his parent stove, it's better at heating the house. Of course, efficiency plays a role here, but the design seems to make the difference. Effectiveness is closely connected to those goals. I know this is sounding very tomato to model here. And just for your own sanity, when you're listening to the rest of the episode, think efficiency is using less or minimum, but still achieving maximum results. And effectiveness is connected to goals and design. The one thing I know about Dagoda is he's a real design guy. He just loves the stuff. Hence why he offers every year a farm design course. Industrial agriculture is neither efficient or effective. Um, so first off, I guess it's like, what's the goal of agriculture? Mm-hmm. And I would say it's, it's, it's to, it's the production of, you know, food, fiber, and medicine. It's like, it's the, it's primary production. And so, okay, that the goal, the goal is to produce, uh, I think, nutrient dense food to keep people healthy at, at a, at a bare minimum. And, um, okay, so how well is, is industrial agriculture doing at that? Well, it's, it's awful. <laughs> you know, the, the, we, we're, we live in the, in the, in the first time in history where you're more likely to uh, die from too much food than from a lack of food. So that basically the obesity is killing more people than starvation. But we also have a lot of customers who literally can't eat anything else than food that's grown on our farm. Hmm. Um, you know, the basically if they eat, you know, beef or pork or eggs from from any any other producer that they've tried in the province, they get sick. And hmm. for, for whatever reason, the the main reason I think is is the soy uh, that other producers are using. Um, whether and even uh, we, we actually had one customer at one point who she was allergic to chicken eggs. Um, and so she had to buy our eggs and feed our eggs to quail so that she could eat quail eggs. But if she fed those quails, uh, eggs from the store that had soy in them, she would get sick. Interesting. And so like the people are, um, every day, every day I go to the farmer's market, I meet somebody with the same story which is basically like I'm dying or my entire family is dying. We have autoimmune diseases. We have Crohn's, we have colitis, um, you know, irritable bowel syndrome, <clears throat> cancer, whatever it is. And they've, they through their own trial and experimentation and, and sometimes luckily enough with the help of a, an educated doctor, they've discovered that the, the, the missing link is the food that they're eating. And as soon as they stop eating the food that's produced in the industrial agricultural system. And sadly, a lot of these, these customers are, are switching to us because they've actually been eating from organic farmers, but the organic is sliding down. We've forgotten what our goal is as, as farmers, which is to produce nutrient-dense food. Now we're just producing calories or stuff to stuff in your mouth mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and get you full, not, not help you achieve well-being. And, um, and so after, you know, a couple of years, they've just noticed a steady decline and now they can't even eat that food anymore. And so they're, they're switching over to us because of our, some of the unique farming practices that we're using. And on top of that, the agriculture, industrial agriculture is undermining the ability for future generations to continue to feed themselves. So global wheat production peaked in the 1980s per area farmed. So we're actually in, in a steady decline in agricultural productivity per acre. But but as we're deforesting more land, 
we're technically growing more crops, but the per acre yield has actually been in decline. Uh, mm-hmm. And that comes from Richard um, C. Manning in his in his book, um, The Oil Weed. The uh, so that that and then yeah, that, that's the effective effectiveness piece. Is that the the goal behind agriculture <clears throat> is to produce nutrient dense food that keeps people healthy. It's not um, most of the food that's producing is laden with with chemicals. Um, you know, cancer rates are affecting one in two people in North in North America right now. Uh, all of these autoimmune diseases that can be linked back to uh, you know largely you know glyphosate and other uh, neurotoxins and things like that. Um, so it's it's doing a real pitiful job. Or you look at feedlot beef, the uh, or any of these these confinement raised animals. The, their meat is literally toxic. Uh, which has been proved in a lot of, you know, pro-vegan studies in that, you know, we shouldn't be eating meat, but if you take that same animal and you raise it in an environment where it was meant to live, the meat is is very nutrient-dense and yeah. um, and has basically the opposite effect of the, the meat that we're eating. So that's the, <clears throat> that's the effectiveness part. And I think industrial agriculture is doing a, a real terrible job of, of – its primary goal, which is to provide food for people. Now, in terms of the efficiency is how well are we using the resources? And real simple analogy is if you take uh, any industrial crop, so corn, soybeans, rice, wheat, peas, whatever it is, and if you fertilize that crop at the recommended rate, just in nitrogen, Mm. the calorific value of that nitrogen in terms of energy, because you, you actually can calculate how many calories of energy are, are in things. Uh, if you compare that to the calorie of the yield of the crop that you would get off, they cancel each other out. Okay, so you're putting in as many like units of energy as you're getting out of your crop. Exactly, yeah. Okay. Yeah, but but th- that's just fertilizer. So, okay. As, and, and that's just nitrogen. If you Then you have to use you know some kind of phosphorus and potassium, uh, which are also very uh, expensive. And, and then you have to, you know, seed it and harvest it and spray it, you know, six to nine times. Uh, and then you have to transport it and uh, to see it processing and, uh, and packaging. And then you have to ship it to a grocery store where it's refrigerated and they throw, uh, what is it, 30 to 50% out. Yeah. Uh, and so the efficiency is like, okay, how many resources are we using to, to create the, the end product? It's atrocious. I mean, the, the, again, from Richard C. Manning's book, The Oil Weed, he says just in the processing of food, not even in the production, just in the processing, we're using 10 to 1. For every, huh. every one calorie of food we're producing, we're, it takes 10 calories. This is, by definition, the antithesis of, of sustainability. Like, sure. and, 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 and all of the resources that we're using to, uh, uh, in the production of food, um, they're all finite, meaning that uh, meaning that you know there's only so much of them. So things like fossil fuels and and which is that's how all of our uh, all of our all of our synthetic fertilizers and herbicides are are generated from is some some form of of petroleum product. Uh, phosphorus is is currently being mined in uh, in places like Africa or, or on you know basically old. Uh, bat guano caves or bird bird manure from islands that gathered them for thousands of years. It's it's estimated that there's anywhere from you know thirty to hundred years of phosphorus left on the planet before we run out. 
the and, and then the four primary ingredients of agriculture are sunlight, water, soil minerals, and living organisms, flora and fauna. Those are the four ingredients that that we need to create any agricultural product for food, fiber, or pharmaceuticals. And the the way that we're using all of those resources is is very very inefficient inefficient and ineffective and it's actually depleting it's undermining the the ability for uh the resource base so uh as we decrease our soil carbons soil organic carbon levels the ability for the soil to hold water is decreased um i think it's about for every 1% organic matter you can increase you can add 15,000 gallons of water storage in the top 12 inches per acre Right. So by corollary, if, if you decrease it by one, you lose 15,000 gallons and, and you need wa- all those four ingredients. They're all interrelated and interdependent. So mm. like, you can't just grow a crop with sunlight and soil minerals and living organisms. You need water. So if you, if you're missing any one of those, those four ingredients, it doesn't work. Right. And, and the way that we're currently farming is we're, we're losing our ability to have water. We're, lo- we're losing more topsoil. Here's another great metric is if you look at, um, even here in Alberta, Alberta agriculture has a map of the province that lists off the levels of soil erosion by region, and it's a color-coded map. And the soil erosion rates range from, uh, I believe it's uh, it's like three to five tons to over thirty tons per acre per year. Mm-hmm. So, ironically, the, the Alberta's largest agricultural export is soil. Per, per acre, even if you take like the best fields, well, because there's nobody that I know that's getting, you know, 10 tons of, of um, barley and wheat per acre. Right. Uh, so, and, and, and again, you need soil minerals to grow a crop. So it's like, we're not only is it, is it inefficient and effective, it's, it's completely unsustainable. And, um, you know, it's taken me a while to be able to art- articulate these things and having a friend who's a mechanical engineer and, and, really understands physics and entropy um, really hit this home for me is that the, another way to look at it is, is if we continue to manage our resource base, the way that we're managing it, it doesn't matter. It's not a matter of, of if we will uh, run out of, of resources, it's a matter of when, because like if we iterate this enough over a long enough period of time, we'll eventually hit zero. We'll eventually run out of soil We'll eventually run out of phosphorus, or we'll eventually run out of fossil fuels, uh, or or we'll eventually run out of biodiversity, which which is again that's the living organisms component that that allows us to harvest and and combine the sunlight, the water, and the, and the soil minerals into some usable thing, whether that's in you know plants or animals, and uh, and then it's game over. Right. So this in in game theory, it's like this is not a playable game. So, so as a, as a, as a culture, we need to change how we are, we are feeding ourselves. Uh, and, you know, on our, on our farm, we, we have the, just sum it up really quickly is, is the irony is that we're literally eating ourselves and our planet to death. You guys know, I do do my best to keep things positive with this podcast. You know, we like to focus on those farm solutions that are also climate solutions. But sometimes you do need to talk about the problems to understand the solutions. I found an interesting article from last May in the Alberta Farmer Express talking about soil erosion. 
Soil scientist David Lobb of the University of Manitoba is quoted in the article as saying, Soil erosion costs Canadian agriculture producers $3 billion in lost revenue every year. I found that kind of hard to believe, just, well, it's hard to understand, I should say, because no-till is fairly accepted practice, at least out here in Alberta, that he's still advocating for less tillage. So it sounds like we're still disturbing the soil too much with our low-till or minimal-till methods. Now, what does Lobb say the solution is here? Well, keeping the soil healthy, so reducing soil disturbance, keep that soil biology healthy and thriving with things like cover crops, managed grazing, maybe even intercropping. You can go down one heck of a rabbit hole looking up the state of phosphorus in the world right now. I found estimates that say, you know, we'll run out of phosphorus in a century, some say 200 years, another article said it's possible we'll face shortages by 2050. Agriculture uses up most of the world's phosphorus. If you remember, phosphorus is the P in MPK. You can get phosphorus from guano, as Dakota mentioned. You can also get it from mining phosphate rock. Now, what's the solution to decreasing phosphorus consumption? Well, reducing fertilizer use seems like the obvious no-brainer, but if your soil's deficient in phosphorus, you ain't going to be growing much without it. Now, animal as well as human waste are sources of phosphorus, so rotating your livestock frequently instead of concentrating them in one area close to the yard seems to be a good way to spread out that urine, spread out that manure across your land. Also, and it does kind of make my skin crawl talking about this, maybe we need to start having hard conversations with our counties about better ways to use our sewage. Apparently, there's some countries in Europe that are already using sewage in some of their agriculture systems. All right, enough talk about poo. At this point in our conversation, things take an interesting turn. I want to add another word in, which is ethics. Okay. And... um. And I believe that there there is an ethical, um, a, a scientific basis for morality, and what is right and what is wrong, and the and this this comes from is a, a philosopher by the name of Sam Harris who um, who talks about this. Um, he used the analogy of a moral landscape in that just like in a landscape, there's peaks and valleys, there's there's ridges and and valleys, highs and lows, and um, so. It, it it might never be possible to say what is the most moral or the most ethical thing or what is the least moral or the least ethical thing, but we can objectively and scientifically say this is more ethical than this. And, and the, the way that he argues we do that is through um, uh, the, the describing things through uh, well-being. Mm-hmm. And or, or or thriving is another word, and um, or biodiversity is another word. So on on our farm, uh, the 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 ethical framework that we through which we operate is based on one of the the systems of permaculture, which is the the three ethics, which is earth care, people care, and future care. So it's it's how do we how do we provide for our own needs in a way that's good for the planet. Good for other, good for other, and by other planet, I mean other organisms and, and the whole biosphere. Good for other people. So not just us. And, and, and 
how do we do that in a way that allows other people to do that in the future in the same means or better than us? That's that's what well-being is, is providing for your basic needs um, in a way that is is basically allows you to continue to play the game for as long as possible. Um, and so there, I believe there is a, an ethical and moral component behind how we're living on this planet. And I think we can do better. And, uh, uh, and the way we're going to, the way we're going to accomplish that is through a deep understanding of the natural world and, and, uh, an attempt to partner and mimic it through our endeavors to, uh, provide for humanity's needs. Right now, we're using about uh, two to four gallons of diesel per acre per year okay. on our farm. And that's that, that's just in the production side. I actually use more diesel driving my food around than I do producing it, <laughs> <laughs> uh, which, which again is another r- reason why we need to have localized food systems. Um, because if, uh, to get every, every load of meat I take to Calgary, I, I can't help but think it's like, well, I just, I, I used more calories driving down here than I delivered (laughs) (laughs) and I, and that's even on a full load. So, um, uh, that's kind of the efficiency perspective. Now, in, in terms of what we're doing with that, you know, two to four acres or gallons of diesel per acre is uh, we're currently growing all of our own grain and all of our own forages. And the only thing we're buying from off farm is salt and livestock mineral. And and, and with that, we're producing, uh, what would it be, about 6,000 pounds of pork a year and about 6,000 pounds of, of grass-fed beef that we direct market. So it's basically, it's, it's enough meat and eggs for 60 families. Uh, and, and that... The food, but the food that we're producing is is a uh, is also nutrient dense, so it's it's very effective. It, it it's we've had our our uh, pork, beef, and eggs tested for their omega three to six ratio. They all you know came back kind of top of the top of class. Let's talk about this omega three to omega six thing, or other way around, omega six to omega three, because this kind of takes me back. This this first came across my radar when I first moved out to Alberta. This would be the winter of two thousand seventeen. I just missed a presentation by the University of Toronto's Richard Bazinet presenting his findings on omega-6 to omega-3 ratio in meat, eggs, milk. The farm I apprenticed on that year, so Redtail Farms in Castor, they had their beef tested in this experiment. And I'm pretty sure this is where Dakota had his beef tested as well. Anyway, the results came back and grass-fed beef had an omega-6 to omega-3 ratio that's about 3 to 1. Just to give that a bit of context, uh, grain-fed beef came back with a ratio of 40 to 1. So why does this matter at all? When the ratio gets out of whack like that, so when omega-6s are way higher to omega-3s, it can lead to human health complications. Omega-6 appears to be linked to inflammation and may be linked to diseases like heart disease, autoimmune diseases, even cancer. In general, Western diets today are just way too high in omega-6, at least compared to the diets we evolved with as a species. We've heard Dakota mention nutrient-dense multiple times in this interview. It's all I've ever heard since I moved out to Alberta, but that just might be more the agricultural producers that I come across. 
I've never fully understood what nutrient-dense food meant. So I found this definition. It's actually from the National Cancer Council, but I think it's a fairly decent one. So the definition is food that is high in nutrients but relatively low in calories. Nutrient-dense foods contain vitamins, minerals, complex carbohydrates, lean protein, and healthy fats. Examples of nutrient-dense foods include fruits and vegetables, whole grains, low-fat or fat-free milk, seafood, lean meats, eggs, peas, beans, and nuts. All right, folks, we finally arrived at the moment you've been waiting for. We've gone over theory, big pictures, big ideas. Now we're going to get into the management practices. Do keep in mind while you're listening to this, what Dakota and his family are doing on their farm is really innovative. It's quite exciting. If you do get a chance to check it out, check it out. They have farm tours quite often in the summer. But the this system that they developed is a system that works for their land and their goals. So some of these practices might not work on your land. I'm not giving you an excuse not to try these things. I'm just trying to be honest with you. It's not going to work everywhere. That being said, the goal of producing the most nutrient-dense food possible is a goal that can and should work in any farm or any ranch in Alberta. We currently feed our, our chickens and pigs grain that we grow on farm. So things like oats, barley, peas. And um, last year with the drought, we had to buy a bit of grain off farm because we our crops failed. Mm. That was the worst drought in 20 years in our area. But but whenever we buy anything off farm, it's certified organic. But the, so that but grain because we know that grain is very uh, uh, expensive to produce in terms of calories and resources, uh, we are trying to limit the amount of grain that our chickens and our pigs are eating uh, through two ma- main means. The first is that any grain that we feed them is fermented, so uh, we we grind the grain on farm and we mix it. Uh, we mix our own ratios uh, so that we can play around with, you know, what's the what's the best mix. And uh, and then before we feed it to them, we, we ferment it for 12 to 24 hours, uh, typically with some raw milk from our Jersey milk cows. And that uh, process is uh, helps to unlock um, some of the anti-nutrients that are, are in grain. So grain doesn't actually want to be eaten, strangely enough, because if it is, it, it dies and and its genes can't procreate and so it's evolved rather ingenious ways of stopping um, animals from consuming it uh, so that it, it can survive and basically it does that through poisoning them and so any any animal that that eats grain in the wild either has to consume a large amount of clay or have some kind of a a, a, a a crop that that allows them to grind it up, or some kind of a you know special fermentation device, and um, and even like chickens in the wild would not eat a lot of grain. It's actually not not good for them. And so, um, but humans also can't fi- uh, had this problem for thousands of years. But then they figured a way out around it, which is fermentation. So by adding in living organisms into the mix, <clears throat> they can take those anti nutrients and they can make them inactive. So sourdough bread or sprouting are two common uh, means by which humans have figured out how to take a toxic food and make it into a very nutrient-dense food. And you know, so anybody who's gluten intolerant 
um, if you if you go to typically you can't even buy organic stuff that doesn't have glyphosate residues. But I've talked to a lot of my a lot of my friends and customers who are gluten intolerant. If you go to France or Europe and you and you buy organic sourdough bread there, you'll have no problem, uh. and you can eat it for days. <clears throat> um, and uh, so that, that's a really simple example. Is is um, is where it takes extra time to do that in in specialized systems. But we, we ferment all the grain that we feed them to, uh, to make sure that they're getting the most nutrients out of the least amount of grain possible. Um, and th- the other way that we're doing it is we are adding in a forage into the mix. So we have our own mixed melon farm with a bale feeder attachment. And we actually grind in small square bales uh, into our pig and chicken feed so that uh, we can kind of dilute the amount of grain with uh, less costly uh, forage production. And, uh, so right now my pig feed is about 30% by weight, uh, forage. So things like alfalfa, Timothy brome, and, you know, a lot of other Forbes and, and things like that. So, uh, and, and how I've done that is through, through, uh, basically develop the development of genetics. So I'm trying to develop grass fed pigs on the farm and and every year for the past six years, I've slowly increased the amount of forages that I'm mixing into their diet and, and decreased the amount of grain that they're getting. Uh, and I'm fermenting all that in raw milk, but I'm also, I've actually, I've actually started to feed them less grain. Uh, so I guess that's the third way is actually just um, encourage them to basically fast or go and get their own food themselves. So I, I don't, I only, I limit feed um, our pigs and our chickens. So we only give them just just enough food for them to kind of uh, you know maintain their current body weight. But if they want to grow and and they have to go out and forage on their own, and whenever they go out and forage, they're not eating grain. They're either eating grass or insects or tubers or worms. And uh, and in, so the the way that we're producing nutrient dense food is where we are increasing the diversity of foods that these animals are eating because nutrient density and diversity are uh, intimately connected. And the way that we're doing that uh, efficiently is is that we're limiting our fossil fuel resources. We're encouraging uh, using natural systems to um, and, and good design to allow our animals to, to basically gather their own food and look after themselves as much as possible. And um, uh, yeah, that's... That's just a really simple example of kind of, oh, and I guess the, the the ethical component of that, because we talk efficiency, effectiveness, and ethical, is while as we're doing that, we're continuously monitoring for those three variables. Like, are we looking after ourselves and our in our communities? Like the people component, are we looking after the health of the planet? Like, is biodiversity increasing, and uh, and are we doing this in a manner that would allow the future generations? To, to continue to manage the land in the way that we're doing um, and and have it be the same or better. And uh, and the answer to all those three of those questions is, is yes. We talked about earlier how there's four ingredients of agriculture, water, sunlight, soil, and living organisms or flora and fauna. And uh, water in our ecosystem here on the prairies is one of the limiting resources. So typically, there's more than enough soil, there's more than enough sunlight, and there's more than enough biodiversity to grow an agricultural crop. But what what slows everything back, or what's the 
kind of log jam is uh, is water. So if, if you don't have that one ingredient, it doesn't like nothing else grows. And uh, and so the the solution that most farmers use to fix this is irrigation. And mm-hmm. now the problem with irrigation is that it uses a tremendous amount of fossil fuels because you're typically pumping water or or um, building you know large uh, earthworks to carry water, divert it from you know spring sources and things like that, and and, and having it in open canals where it evaporates and uh, and the salinity increases. Or if you're just pumping it from underground, as it as you're irrigating during the daytime, when it hits the soil surface, most of it actually evaporates before it even hits the ground. And any dissolved solids or minerals in that water are left in the soil surface. And so what happens is you start to you start to basically turn your soils into salt pan. And if you look back at any um, any collapse of a civilization, typically uh, one of the factors that played a role was the salting of their soils. The Romans the Romans actually figured this out rather ingeniously. And so when they would siege a city. Uh, or go on go on a, a warring campaign. They would actually bring a lot of salt with them, and um, and to ensure that their their uh, enemies couldn't kind of re- retaliate. The last thing they would do after they had killed everybody and burned the city is they would go around the fields and throw handfuls of salt in the soil because they because they knew that they couldn't you couldn't grow a crop for years after that, and so it would basically you know kick the can down the road for when the 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 uh, sons of the slaughtered would come back and seek vengeance, and and we're basically doing this to ourselves. <laughs> and so if you go if you go down to Lethbridge or Medicine Hat or any of those places where they're using center pivot irrigation, you'll start to see little white caps poking out on the hilltops where nothing's growing, and uh, you can literally see uh, healthy land being turned into a desert there. Uh, and, and at a certain point, this is, this is what they did in Australia is, is uh, they, um, they were irrigating um, even with, even with flood irrigation and stuff, but they've got a lot of higher evaporation right there, <clears throat> but they they cut down all the trees and, and we're doing irrigation and I can't remember what the process was, but basically the water table um, uh, rose up. So it was just below the surface. So it was actually through osmosis, the water was evaporating through the soil and um, this, the, the, the ground turns into what's called uh, salt crete, um, okay. which is basically a hard pan that goes down, you know, feet uh, into, this, into the soil that you can't even break through with like heavy machinery. You need specialized, um, basically stuff to break up pavement or concrete to get through it. And uh, there's vast tracts of, of Australia that have now been turned into the salt crete and there's really known no known way of of how we can turn that around by the abuse of one resource the water in component we can actually un- we can destroy one of the other resources which is soil okay <clears throat> and 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 then you you look at how much fossil fuels we're using to to pump all that stuff around it's insane or the, uh, I watched a documentary the other day that looked at the the amount of the amount of energy that's used to move water from uh, Colorado, the Colorado water, watershed, down through the uh, down through to California for all the irrigation, because um, th- they're actually pumping it uphill. It's like thousands of feet sideways and and hundreds of feet uphill through a series of of locks and uh, and levees. The amount of energy that that uses in the pumps 
um, if is equivalent to the amount of energy of all the nuclear power plants in North uh-huh. in North America. So it's like if you want to get rid of nuclear, stop pumping water around. So the alternative is 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 management and. Um, and that's going to look different in whatever ecosystem you live in, but I guarantee you, uh, if you, if you go back far enough into the ecological timeline, you'll find some kind of nature, nature-based solution, um, that, uh, the ecosystem figured out how to optimize for those four ingredients. So for, for basically billions of years, planet earth has been trying to figure out how do we combine sunlight, soil, water, and organisms to be the most productive, resilient, uh, and um, uh, efficient and effective system possible, and and depending on where you are on the planet, what your temperature, your climate, your geography, your soil types, all these different variables, whatever, depending on where you are, that ecosystem will look different. Um, it's typically con- referred to as the climax ecosystem or your biome. You know, in our area, in the in the prairies here, we live in a, our climax ecosystem or the most efficient, effective. Um, uh, system of production for our ecosystem is called the Aspen Parkland biome, which is characterized by groves of trees uh, interspersed with grasslands, with large herds of grazing animals, and uh, you know a, a huge diversity of 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 plant life. And <clears throat> and the the way that our ecosystem managed water flows in our environment is because we live in a cold climate where for Six months of the year, the ground is frozen solid, and we actually get upwards of 50% of our precipitation comes as snow in our environment. Uh, but when the ground's frozen solid, that snow runs off, mm-hmm. and so it can't sink into the ground. So it's like if you want to have an efficient and effective water cycle, you need to figure out a way to get that 50% of, the, of your moisture into the ground as early as possible. The way that natural systems did that was through wetlands and riparian areas. And so, uh, you know, uh, just imagine like a a bare a, a bare prairie where, say, a, a buffalo comes along and and digs a little wallow to to rub in, and it's a little hole in the ground, and there's grasses that grow around that. Well, then the next winter, uh, those grasses help pick up snow, and there's a little bit of water that pools in <clears throat> in that little hole. Um, because there's a little bit more water, it can grow a little bit more grass. Um, or, or cattails maybe and then the next year those cattails even capture more snow and then something else comes back like a muskrat and he starts to dig out that hole even a little bit bigger and uh and then that holds more water which si- suddenly you can grow trees now willows they start to capture more snow which means you can have more water which means you can grow more vegetation and you can see how e- ecosystems have the tendency to um become more complex they're, they're, it's called an upward spiral. Every every generation in a healthy ecosystem, there's more pot- potential. Um, so the, there's a fellow by the name of Paul Crafell, uh, who uh, that's kind of coined these terms upward and downward spirals. An upward spiral is the creation of, of impossibilities. Mm-hmm. And a downward spiral is the erosion of possibilities, the erosion of potential. <clears throat> and so the... Coming back to this water analogy here, the, the all of a sudden now you've got this wetland that's that's holding thousands of gallons of water infiltrating into the ground. Suddenly you get springs pop up because you've you've you've, you've saturated the, the soil profile and now you have a spring that actually runs you around. Well, suddenly you can have more organisms that live there, and then those springs feed into the rivers and the creeks, and and they start to run you around as opposed to this boom and bust cycle. And because they're running, you're more 
they're more running uh, more, more steadily. They can grow more forage year-round, which means in the next winter they can harvest more uh, snow, which and it also means that there's less evaporation because there's no bare soil anymore. So when it does rain, the, so the rain's able to enter into the ground. But all that vegetation is also increasing the carbon in the soil. So you can actually hold more carbon um, or some more water in the soil than you could before. So it's like every year it gets better and better and better. And then what do we do is we come along, we look at that wetland and we say, hey, that'd be a good place to grow canola. And we cut all the trees down, we windrow them, we burn them with diesel. And then we drain the wetlands and we pr produce a single crop that only photosynthesizes for two months out of the year, produces less calories per acre uh, than it took to create, uh, and and is literally toxic to uh, to humans as a, as a food source. Like it's just, it's, it's, it's insane. And so our, the system that we took on the farm is our land was completely denuded of all of our wetlands. All of our trees had been cut down. Um, my parents had did some of that, um, in the early years, but most of it was done before we even got here. So our process is for, for at least for water, actually, no, for the whole ecosystems, if we want to produce the most nutrient dense food possible, which is requires us to arrange those four ingredients, uh, in a manner that's efficient, effective, and ethical, we need to mimic our biome. So we need to copy the Aspen Parkland biome, which is groves of trees interspersed with grasslands. Yeah. Um, because all of our wetlands are gone, we need to put those back because they're an integral part of the four ingredients. The way that we're doing that is we're building wetlands on contour, which is what a swale is. A swale is just a, a ditch that, that's, that's meant to intercept spring runoff um, in, in our environment. You can also use it in dry lands or, or in... Uh, uh, non-temperate climates but in our environment <clears throat> it's mainly to capture uh, runoff from snow melt because the ground's frozen solid so it's the only means that we have to turn this downward spiral around because at a certain point if you have no vegetation that's slowing the wind down to keep the frost from going to the ground um, uh, you get to a certain point where, where every year if, if you stop doing anything every year it gets worse and worse and worse because uh, because you don't have enough water to grow the grass to build the soil, to grow the forage, to stop the snow that gives you water and, and to stop evaporation. So we had to put our wetlands back, but as opposed to having them in these little round circles, kind of all of the place, we basically took uh, through contour maps, we found where all those locations were, connected them, uh, connected the dots with these uh, these trenches that allow us to intercept water and kind of flood them into these swales or into these wetlands. Uh, we also are building dugouts and dams typically where these wetlands used to exist to try to augment them so that we can use that water for irrigation um, uh, throughout the year. But whenever we do use irrigation, we're irrigating responsibly and that we're not allowing for evaporation. We're either using drip irrigation or uh, uh, irrigating only at night to um, and on top of a, a covered soil surface so that there's very little evaporation. Okay, cool. And uh, with uh, creating swells, is it quite expensive or can you do it relatively cheap uh it's it's actually it's very uh, financially inexpensive and and very energy inexpensive as well uh so for example one of the the longest there's larger swales in the property is a 600 meter swale that we have or 1800 feet uh it's about 12 feet wide by two feet deep and uh every year it captures it or it's it's full capacity is 200,000 gallons and um, and that swale took uh, what was it? I think it was twelve hours with a twenty-seven ton excavator. So basically, basically it's like a hundred or 
less than four gallons per hour. Um, so is that that's uh, 72, 72 gallons of diesel, and it costs about twenty five hundred bucks. Okay. Uh, so it's it's you know very very cost effective, but that that single swale, it's like it's it's a solid state. There's no moving parts, and it will last for hundreds of years. So when you're thinking of a biome, you need to think of a community. You know, it's a community of plants and animals that have a common or have common characteristics that assist them to survive and thrive in the environment that they're in. I want to say biomes are the exact same thing as natural regions. I think there might be some subtle differences that I'm missing. For example, biomes are more concerned with what's living and natural regions are concerned with what's living and what's not living. But just in case you want to try some of this mimicking your biome or natural region, it's really easy to find out which natural region you're in. You can Google it in about two seconds. I'll just quickly go over the six natural regions we have here in Alberta. So we have the Rocky Mountain region, which I'm hoping you already know you're in the Rocky Mountain region if you're in the Rocky Mountains. Boreal Forest region would be in the north. Foothills region leading up to the Rockies. Parkland region in central Alberta. Canadian Shield region, which is just this little corner up in northeastern Alberta. And in the south, we have the Grassland region. The one thing that keeps me up at night is this biomimicry. I don't know the best way to do it or the the right way to do it. The problem is, how do we know how things worked or what they looked like before we got here and muck things up? I know we got a couple of ideas, but how can we be certain? And with climate zones shifting, we can grow things here that we weren't able to grow in the past. Is it okay to grow those things now that it's possible, even though it wasn't possible in the past and it technically wasn't the region in the past? You can see how this is quite uh, vexing at times. Anyway, let's uh, shelve that conversation for another day. Let's listen to what Dakota has to say about the difference between sustainability and regenerative. So sustainable is is like you are you are creating as much energy as you're as you're consuming. That's sustainable. It's like it's you've reached equilibrium. So you're you're not you're not using less energy, but not using more. Now regenerative is your you are creating more energy than you're using. Okay. So the amount of energy that it took to build that swale, which is which is less energy than a farmer will put on one acre of uh, in terms of fertilization, and they have to do that every year for the next hundred years. I put in that energy, and for the next probably actually 200 years, this is a pretty large swale, that uh, that investment of energy is going to uh, contribute far more energy back into the system in the, the vegetation that it's going to help produce in all the trees that we're planting. Um, so the, the calories that will be sequestered as a result of that expenditure of energy will far surpass um, yeah the amount that it, it took to implement it so that by definition is actually beyond sustainable it's actually regenerative we're actually nice. we're actually creating more energy than we than it took to, to to put it into into existence and to me that that's like that is that is magical that that we can we can do this and um and living organisms are are really our only hope for coming out of this downward spiral that we're in right now and the sad thing is that we're losing biodiversity anywhere from 100 to 2000 species a year based on whose estimates you read um, and every time we lose one of those organisms 
and a species goes extinct, we lose the potential for uh, partnering with that particular organism to basically create energy uh, that uh, and and create uh, um, new opportunities that didn't exist before. Which is like if if you if you believe in the theory of evolution, which I think there's some pretty good basis for, you have to think about this. Like at a at a certain point in history, humans didn't exist. Uh-huh. At a certain point in history, consciousness didn't exist, but now it does. That is that is mind-boggling. So we we actually have no idea how good things could be if if we if we play our cards right. But we do know how bad things can be if we continue to manage our resources the way we're managing them. And so to me, this is that's the only argument that we need to to adopt our uh, adopt adopt or eliminate the current management practices that we're using to uh, try to move towards a more efficient, effective, and ethical agricultural system. We've got a a hub-and-spoke system for our uh, integrated livestock system. So our our milk-fed pigs, our Jersey cows, and our pasture-raised birds um, all come back to the same point in the farm every day for the entire year. And uh, the, we've played around with this kind of the, the alternative model is called like a follow the leader model, which is where everything's mobile and the pigs and the chickens and the cows are out on pasture and, and all of their their needs kind of follow around in portable infrastructure. We've, we tried that system and uh, it, it, I didn't particularly like it on our farm um, for several reasons. One is we have very hilly land. And so it was very unsafe to be moving some of this portable infrastructure around the environment. We also very windy here, and so uh, it's it's challenging to to have safe, uh, um, um, you know, mobile housing and things like that that um, that can handle kind of the the steep slopes and the high wind. Uh, it's but the the main reason was the amount of energy it took to manage it. So. Uh, <clears throat> There is a there's a, a Greek uh, legend of uh, the king of of uh, his name is Sisyphus, and um, uh, this king had offended one of the gods, and the gods punished by punishment they made him roll uh, a rock up a mountain for eternity uh, to make it worse because the, the Greek gods were always trying to find very cruel and unusual ways of torturing people like the grapes and the water and things like that. Um, but the, the sick part was that they, they would let uh, Sisyphus reach the top of the mountain uh, with his rock. But as soon as, as he did, the rock would roll back to the bottom. And so th- that's the legend where we get the, the idea of like a, a Sisyphean task, okay. which, which is by definition something that is laborious and futile. Uh, so in other words it's drudgery Uh, every single person has a built in drudgery meter and it's called procrastination (laughs) and so whenever you're doing something and and you don't like it and you're just like I just really don't want to do that and you you feel that aversion towards doing that thing typically uh it's because you intuitively know that the amount of energy that you're going to spend doing that thing is, is, is laborious and futile. It's a waste of your life energy. And so you don't want to do it. Okay. Um, so that, yeah, the, 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 
the felt sense of of drudgery is actually a a, I think a very it's it's an evolutionary biological adaptation that allows humans to make good decisions that are efficient, effective, and ethical. But but because we live in a society and a culture where we have an abundance of of slaves all around us, all we have to do is push a button and that feeling goes away. And because we've got, you know, 200 energy slaves that come in and fix that problem for us, because as soon as we don't like something and it, and it feels bad, as opposed to changing the way we're doing it, we just get an engineer involved and they, they install a pump or a, or something to, to get rid of that problem. Um, and so on our farm, I actually, I, I try to, um, I try to honor those feedback loops and, 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 and I have a saying that um, I, I live by, which is drudgery is punishment for stupidity. If you're doing something and it sucks, it's because you're stupid and you need to design a better way of doing that thing. And if you're not careful, that that, that feeling of, of drudgery, if, if, you don't, uh, if you don't handle those moments in, in day-to-day life and every farmer has them where you're, you're doing a job and it's just like, oh, this sucks. I hate this those are the crucial moments that I believe have shaped agriculture into what they are today. Because it's at that point that you either change what you're doing or you go and buy a tractor or you go and buy fossil or you go and buy fertilizer, you go and buy herbicide. I hate this pest. Why is this not working? I just wish there was something I could kill it with. And that, as opposed to there's a reason this is happening and it's my fault. And I'm going to figure out what I did wrong to create this, this situation so it's it's really the the negation of personal responsibility in in an ecosystem, and as humans we we think that we're above and beyond, uh, uh, you know, nature basically, and that we're exempt from these rules. And um, so that's kind of sorry if that was a, that was a tangent, but the the the, the 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 reason that we moved to this hub and spoke system is because uh, managing. This follow the leader leader system like like Joel Salatin's the most famous guy and maybe it works for Joel. I'm not his. Everybody's context different, but for for us, the amount of energy we were spending moving these egg mobiles and the portable chicken or pig systems and all this other stuff around was a complete waste of energy. It's like it's it sucked and no matter how I tried to design it and change it, it just wasn't working. And so I decided I was going to make a switch and go back to a hub and spoke system where the animals always come back to me. I can go out and in one hour do all my morning chores. I can milk a cow, feed 30 pigs uh, and, and you know, 200 chickens. And, um, and I'm done my chores for the day. But then the animals have all these spokes that, that radiate out uh, that represent different forage resources at different times in the, throughout the year, uh, depending on where I want them. And, um, and that way the animals... The animals are, are doing the work, but for the animals, it doesn't feel like drudgery because they're fu- they're fulfilling their role in the ecosystem. Like a pig wants to root, a chicken wants to scratch, a cow wants to graze. You can't stop them from doing it. And so the whole point of an ecosystem is, is to try to, um, there's no such thing as work or drudgery and there's no such thing as pollution. Every, every function of the ecosystem is provided for, from within the ecosystem by something that exists within it. And every yield of that ecosystem is used by it. And, and so on our farm, we're just experimenting with different uh, design systems to see how we can use other elements to achieve functions for us in a way that the animals want to do it. And it's, it's efficient, effective, and ethical. Uh, so, yeah, we basically have all these different spokes. There's pasture spokes. There's uh, forest spokes. There's a, a wetlands 
spoke where we have our pigs go out to graze cattails, which is the most productive root crop on the planet. There's another spoke that's in our, our garden. So the pigs and chickens just, I open a gate and suddenly the pigs and chickens are fertilizing and weeding and, and doing pest control in my garden. So I don't have to do that. Uh, and, uh, and I've got another spoke, which is, you know, there's a, uh, I use grow duckweed and minnows, which I'm using to feed to our, our pigs and our chickens. And, um, uh, and I, at different times of the year, I just open a gate and the pigs and chickens are in one thing and, and once they're done in that forge area, I close that gate and I open another one. Or I use electric fencing to create um, other areas where I want them to go. And, and our, But our beef cows, our beef cows don't come back. They're not part of the hub and spoke system because it isn't a waste of energy. It's not laborious and futile to rotate beef cows. The amount of return we get for the energy invested is worth it. Because the only thing beef cows need is a block of mineral and some water. Um, so they rotate around the whole farm and they don't come back to the, the central hub of the system. But because the pigs, the pig, chickens and the milk cows require more labor from us, I've designed a different system to make it easier for me to have my energy in the system because, because it's, it's so important to, to, um, to not have an inefficient system where that feels like drudgery because those are the points when you, when you screw it, I'll buy a quad, screw it. I'll just, I'll use more energy uh, or I'll get a bigger tractor or I'll, I'll buy more fertilizer. Um, that those are the things I'm trying to get away with because I believe that those aren't playable games. And if we continue along that philosophical path, it's, it's going to end in destruction. This is the part in our story or conversation where farm design meets reality. And by reality, I mean money. Everything Dakota is describing here, it sounds awesome. It sounds great. I'm pretty sure most of you listening to this right now would love to try this on your farm or ranch. But I had to ask the question, is he making money doing this? It's a great question and, uh, and I, I love it. So the... First, I'm going to answer it with a with kind of a, a quote from uh, uh, Henry Thoreau, which is I'm kind of paraphrasing here, but he, he said, uh, "What good is all the money in the world if you haven't got a tolerable planet to spend it on?" Yeah. And so that's that's the first thing is is like money is just one metric. Um, the, but the, the the second and the second actually before I, before I go on this tangent, yes, our farm makes money. My parents haven't worked off farm for for six years now. Uh, about seventy percent of my income comes from the farm, and the rest of it I do ed- educational stuff. Uh, we are in a, in a unique situation where our land is paid for, and we don't have a lot of debts. I just have a little a little bit of community debts through various loans that I've used to to develop some infrastructure. So we're we're in a lucky situation there, um, but. <clears throat> um, uh, but we we built a farm from scratch in ten years, uh, f- with basically cash flowing it ourselves, with with no outside money. We're not uh, we didn't inherit it from anybody else. My parents paid for the land through their through the sweat of their brow, and uh, so absolutely, our our farm is financially sustainable, and um, you know they've were it was touch and go for their in the early years when before we kind of. Uh, got into permaculture but now things are looking great but this is actually i want to kind of unpack that question of of profitability a a little bit more because i think it's a really important important uh thing to do is that consider this is that uh in our our one family right now our family is feeding 
60 families. Mm-hmm. Um, if you can't make a living doing that, there's something wrong with the financial system. Like there's, there's something wrong with uh, the economy. And I know most farmers, like you just said, are struggling uh, uh, with financially. And uh, part of the, the reasoning behind that is because for, for almost, you know, coming up on a hundred years now, the, our governments have been subsidizing industrial agriculture through various basically welfare programs, crop insurance, agri-stability, uh, um, tax exemptions, things like that, to create food that's cheaper than it actually is to produce. And now, as you know, regenerative farmers, we, we see the writing on the wall. We see that the way, if we keep playing this game the way we're playing it, it's going to end in game over. And so we, we there's all these regenerative farmers who are stepping up to the plate saying, I want to do something different. But the the biggest hurdle is the financial profitability mm-hmm. and uh and so i'm going to go on a, a limb here and say that uh, this is like re- rearranging deck chairs in the titanic it's like there's <clears throat> the, our ship is sinking and as farmers we're all squabbling around whether the chairs face left or right when the bankers and our governments are basically making off with the lifeboats uh, as our as our ship sinks, and so as a culture, we need to ask some really tough questions about why you spend more money on your cell phone bill than you do on your food bill, right. or uh, and or 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 uh, why you know uh, uh, a canola farmer can cut down a forest and get a subsidy from the government for sequestering carbon because the next year they grew more no-till canola. Mm-hmm. Like th- there are there are really fundamental problems with the things that our culture values and uh, Canadians spend uh less money uh, per like a less percentage of their income than than almost any other country in the world. I think it's like it's like 10% or something. Some in Africa, uh, a friend of mine was just telling me it's like ninety percent of their income is spent on food. I'm not saying that that's what it should be, but but if <clears throat> if as a, a species we want to continue living on this planet, we have to follow the rules of of nature and physics, and uh, which which requires us to use renewable resources and and to manage our ecosystems away in a way that's that's ethical and that it looks after people looks after the planet and looks after our ability to do that in the future and in order to do that requires a huge amount of skill um and and also the fact that we're we're we we need farmers that are producing nutrient-dense food because you know in canada you don't have to we have free health care and so it's you know it's not a big deal if you get sick you just go to the doctor and they fix you for free but what's the cost of that like what our taxes are paying for that so there's there's no free lunch. Something something or somewhere or somebody is paying the price for the cheap food that we're eating right now. Whether that's ecosystems or um, you know other people in taxes or or even yourself directly if you're you're paying taxes. And so if we actually did a true cost accounting on the calamity that is our industrial agricultural system, we would find that it's that it's absolutely insane and that food prices should actually be four or five times what they are right now. And, and farmers should be um, revered and respected and consulted as probably the only uh, job class on the planet that can actually do something meaningful 
to turn almost any problem that you can uh, describe in the world around. Uh, I'm biased because I am a farmer, uh, but the that's that's kind of my whole take on the on the financial thing is it's a poor metric to uh, it's a poor metric to to be the only one to base our um, our sustainability on and and another way to to look at this too is is that even the um, uh, I know I know conventional or industrial farmers who have couple couple pig barns couple thousand acres and they still work off farm jobs. Okay. And so it's like like the this 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 question, which is and I know you didn't mean to ask it this way, but this question that I get asked a lot at, at conferences and stuff is really meant as, oh, that's really cute, but yeah, but you know, just just let leave the farming to the big boys because you know we know what's going on, and it's like uh, it's just completely irrational. And then if you actually ask, well, how much money do you make uh, per acre or whatever, whatever much you want to look at, it, they're they're working off farm jobs in oil fields in the wintertime just to just to pay for the interest on their combine. And or or the interest on the fertilizer bill they couldn't pay from last year, so it's it's um, to me it's it's a it's a non-issue and it, it it the question dances around some of the other problems that we're facing. But even if you actually do try to answer the, the question objectively, you find that all these regenerative farms, despite the fact that they're not making a lot of money, they're actually more profitable than any of these industrial farms because they're not propped up by all these other life support systems that are coming from you know, the various government and, and uh, uh, other institutions that, that us as consumers are paying for indirectly. Capitalism uh, is, it, it has, is actually a, a reasonably good system if it's not thrown out of balance through... Um, fiddling and, and, and subsidization. It's like if if something is um, uh, if something is a good idea, it will make money and, and but but it will also be very efficient and very effective. Mm. And and so right now uh, there's a carbon tax across uh, Alberta at least and I'm sure a lot of other provinces too. But car- far- car- farmers are exempt from that. Yeah. And so which is which is absolutely ridiculous. Like the 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 the, the if you're applying a hundred pounds of, of diesel per acre in in calories to fertilize your crop, and you're not paying carbon tax on that, and then you're going around and saying my farm is profitable and all these regenerative guys aren't, that's insane. Like, like <laughs> yeah, there's sure. there's so let's let's if if we're gonna if we're gonna do accounting, let's do it properly. And and yes, money is is one thing that has to balance out in the balance sheet, but energy also has to balance out too, because at the end of the day, money is a stand-in for energy. And it always has been. If you re- if you read any book about debt or or money, um, the concept of money came about as as a representation of of value, and and at the end of the day, that value comes back to to the um, basically the energy that that humans are able to to save or transfer to somebody else. So it's like if you had somebody a twenty dollar bill, uh, or I guess now it's now be a uh, $13. That's a, That represents an hour of somebody's life energy. True. And, and so, like, so if, if we really want to do this, let's come back to the actual energy calculations and start there and then have a, have a conversation about sustainability and profitability um, because otherwise we're just, we're, um, we're trying to solve a problem by manipulating the, 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 uh, the wrong variable and, uh, and we need to shift this.
I have this conversation frequently with agriculture producers and other people interested in the food system. Let's call them food system fans. And we talk about how do we pay agriculture producers to protect and regenerate working lands. Don't get me wrong, your bottom line is definitely going to suffer one day if you completely screw up your land. But the financial incentives aren't really there in agriculture to protect ecosystems, take on climate change, or produce the most nutrient-dense food. Sure, there's payment programs through conservation groups like Alice, Canada, Ducks Unlimited, but these are all nonprofits trying to scrape together funds to fund this kind of stuff. And I don't like I don't want to knock either one of these organizations because I think what they're doing is great. I just don't think these are huge financial incentives. Now, if agriculture was an industry where let's say you could pull in, I don't know, a hundred thousand or two hundred thousand every year after taxes and expenses. We probably wouldn't be talking about this right now. You could just do all these great things for the land because you got the time, you got the money, and it's fun. This isn't the case, though. Many producers are still trying to figure out how to be profitable without having an off-farm job or multiple off-farm jobs to prop up their whole agricultural system. Charging more for food is one solution. It is a tricky one, though. Some people in Canada legitimately struggle with today's food prices. Plus, Canadians in general have become accustomed to the idea that food should be cheap. We only spend about, I don't know, 8%, 10% of our income on food. You compare that to other countries, it's quite shocking. So, yes, raising food prices is a solution. I'm not too sure if it's a solution most folks are going to go for. Another solution I have heard is uh, introducing a guaranteed basic income. Now, Dakota has a really interesting theory as to why agricultural producers are just so reluctant to charge more for their food. And it's not just because they're worried people are going to freak out about the higher prices. So this is why, like if you go on my website, my food prices are are far more expensive than most other uh, regenerative farmers. And they're like... I've had people just about spit in my face when I tell them how much my my pork chops cost. But um, and and it, and this this is um, something I really struggled with for years, and I think a lot of other young regenerative farmers will also struggle with this. Is is we this balance between how do we make things uh, uh, affordable and accessible, and and also how do we achieve our our you know look after ourselves. And, and the planet and all those other things. And uh, through different mentorships that I've had, I've, I've personally realized that um, I think money is actually a great educational tool and, the, and a price tag can be a great educational tool to have a conversation with somebody about why something costs the, the, as much as it does. And, um, and so I would, I would greatly in, encourage uh, other regenerative farmers to increase your prices and decrease your production so that you can spend more time designing your property and more time educating your customers and you'll get, make the same amount of money but but you'll but you'll actually be moving towards the goal that that you should have which is healing the planet healing people and doing that in a way that allows us to do that in the future because if if you if you don't have enough time to look after yourself there's no way you can look after your farm and there's no way you can look after your community and there's no way that your children are going to want to continue on that that tradition. And so we, we, um, uh, I'm, I'm a firm believer in, 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 you know, 
pricing things regeneratively. And, um, and I think it's a, it's a conversation that we need to have, but there's, um, there's a lot of baggage around that. Why is it that, that regenerative farmers are so, um, have such an aversion towards charging what they need to charge, what they know they need to charge to, um, to be as, as efficient and effective at, at managing their land and, and in a regenerative way. And the, as far as I can tell, it, it comes down to this is that as, as farmers, we are the last generation that is able to participate in, uh, in the, the miracle of, of life on a day-to-day basis. And, and this is the, the main, the draw from, from the young people who want to come back to the, to, the, to the land is, is that, that calling for, you know, connection and, and community, not just in other people, but other organisms altogether. And that, that feeling of interconnectedness is, is, um, is worth more than any money in the world. And, and it's, it's, it's it's sacred. There's there's no other word that, that I can I can come to describe it. It's it's a it's a sacred feeling and to, and to to be blessed and and lucky enough to to be able to live the lifestyles that we live. Um, we actually feel guilty when we have to turn around and try to sell that to somebody. And hmm. and so it's it's like we 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 really like the feeling is 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 like a pimp and a prostitute that's like that's the closest analogy i can come to it's like there's this there's this thing that you love and that you think is the the most sacred thing in the world but because you need to you know look after your kids and your other other things you're forced to sell this sacred thing and that the, and the selling of that thing is actually is intuitively you see it as a, as a desecration or as a um, as a, as a dishonoring of that. And so the way that we try to reconcile that is we don't charge enough because, because then it, it makes us feel better for, for not doing that. But the, the, the irony, and this is, this is how I started out. Like I started out, you know, giving away basically everything that I, and every, every farmer's had that somebody you know, wants to pay you for something or comes for a farm. So, you know, no, just take it. It's, it's, I'll pay you. It's fine. <laughs> um, but, but when I started to realize that it's like, hold, hold on a second. It's like, if our goal is like, we, we need, we need more people on the land farming, farming smaller farms in a more, that's more diverse. Um, you know, that, that fix that meets the, the three ethical constraints we talked about. Um, and, and we, and we need it faster than ever. Um, but there's this other variable that we're bumping up against and that like everybody, you need to pay your taxes and, and, and insurance and all this other stuff just to survive and, 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 and other food and other things. And so it's like, if, if our goal actually is to regenerate the health of the planet and its people, not charging enough is a sure way to ensure we will never achieve that goal. And so I I made the decision that I was going to charge what I needed to charge to 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 be to so that our farm was financially profitable, but also in a way that somebody else who wasn't in a situation where the land was paid for and everything else, so that they could come in and they could start farming profitably um, without going through the horrendous stress. Like farmer suicide rates uh, are the highest of any occupation in the world right now. Mm-hmm. Why is that? It's like, well, because all these farmers, whether they're regenerative or, or, or industrial, it's like they're all involved in basically the killing of the planet and the selling of a, of a thing that they feel is sacred. And I hope I haven't ragged on industrial farmers too much because I, I really do have a lot of compassion and understanding for for how they got into the situation that they're in right now. 
and and all of the the like they're backed up against the corner by the the banks, the governments, and the um, uh, and the insurance companies. In that, if you take out a loan, um, that loan has to be insured. In order to be insured, you have to farm a certain way, and and in order to farm a certain way, you have to basically you know follow the industrial agricultural par- paradigm. And so it's like it's not it's not just the farmers' faults. We're all capable uh, uh, accomplices in this situation that we're in right now myself included and and it all stems from this idea of like we want to have cheap food so we can spend more money on the you know the luxuries of life but coming back to that henry throw quote is like what good is all the money in the world if you haven't got a tolerable planet to spend it on if we keep doing what we're doing it will end in game over and so it's it's a non-issue we we need to come up with other rules of the game that allow us to continue to play for as long as possible, and um, money is one of the, th- the things that we can, we as industrial, sorry, as regenerative farmers, can have a bit of control over. And it actually becomes a really, it's become a challenge for me. Is like, is is I actually, if 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 I'm not offending some people with the amount that I'm charging, I'm not charging enough, because because it, uh, the um, I I'm seeing and, and I'm not I'm not trying to take people like i've done the the uh what do you call it enterprise analysis i'm I'm still not making a lot of money it's when you actually factor in all the input costs and everything like that but most farmers don't don't factor in the cost of their time or uh anything else and so i'm i'm paying myself a living wage and charging a standard markup uh like any other business would that allows me to reinvest my business so i can create um um continue on with improvements and i'm going to continue to to charge those prices and I'm going to continue to encourage other farmers to charge the same thing because I think it's one of the only, uh, it's one of the variables that has to change for us to be able to continue to live on this planet. Rural Roots to Climate Solution is an Alberta-based project empowering agriculture producers and their communities with climate solutions. Rural Roots runs workshops and farm field days, produces this podcast series and hosts webinars. For more information and to register for all of the above, please go to the website at www.rr2cs.ca uh, the, the Rural Roots to Climate Solution team is Angie O'Connor, Marie Galanka, Evelyn Tanaka, and Derek Leahy. The podcast is funded by the Government of Alberta and Energy Efficiency Alberta. Today's podcast was edited by Kieran Mountain of Mountain Media. Happy farming wherever you are in Alberta, and remember what's good for the farm is usually good for the climate.